Well, good morning. The stone has rolled away and the table almost did too. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. When, uh, when my kids were little, I remember uh, the occasion where we might go to an amusement park or to the county fair. Uh, even a few times we would roll into Disneyland and there would be these moments, if you're a parent, maybe you'll appreciate the moment or just recognize my level of crazy, but there would be these moments where you're in this big crowd of people and you would look around and the terror would come over me that we got separated from one of our kids. And in, in, that, in that split second moment, and it was never because we had been separated, but in that split second moment, I would find myself doing the math of what would we do? How would we find them? Where would they go? Where, and, and I'm trying to fully sad. And, and even in those moments, occasionally, Jen would look at me and probably see the troubled face of consternation, like I was trying to do tough arithmetic or something, and say, you know, what's going on? And I would snap out of it. And then often I would even say to the kids, hey, just on the off chance that we ever got separated, where would you go? And, you know, you kind of established that place where I'd You'd go back there, you wouldn't move, whatever the thing was. Uh, bear in mind, um, I'm pretty old. And so, you know, our six-year-olds, unlike yours, didn't have cell phones because, um, like, they didn't exist. Uh, but truth be told, it, it didn't end when they were little. Because as they got older, I, I remember multiple occasions where I would lay in bed at night when the kids were over at a sleepover and your mind would race about, all the things that could happen at a sleepover. And even like, not, you know, gross, ugly things, but just like, I wonder if they're scared or not sleeping. And one of our kids was always famous for staying at a sleepover until about 1 a.m. We, we didn't call it a sleepover. We called it a lock-in because this particular child, um, who will remain nameless, Ryan, would just call. She's away at college, so she can't defend herself. And the call would come in, and Jen would usually wake up, because by this point, I'm already asleep, and go get her. And then they became teenagers. And uh, nowadays, we lay in bed at night wide awake until they come home at night, right? Yeah. Even though we've got the Life360, and we've got the Find My iPhone, and we, you know, we've got um, spies out in the field <laughs> watching them. But I kid you not, like even now, it, it, and I don't, I, I don't say I it to be condescending, though I, I get that there probably is a sense of that. Uh, when young families say, oh gosh, we didn't sleep last night, I go, oh yeah, wait till they're teenagers. You, you don't sleep. You just don't ever sleep again, right? Uh, yeah. Because they go, well, can I have a later curfew? You go, well, you recognize you get a later curfew. That means I get a later bedtime. Yes. And my boss doesn't care um, about your later curfew. I got to get up in the morning. But these moments of terror would come over. What happens if they get in a wreck? What happens if they get separated on this ride? What happens if something terrible happens to them at a sleepover? And a, a similar terror, I would guess, to a much higher degree was true of those early followers of Jesus on that morning when they came to embalm his body. You, you see... On that Resurrection Sunday, we see a pretty careful recording of the accounts of those early morning hours. And while we tend to spend most of our time at the cross and then at Jesus' appearance, which are 
powerful and life-changing and earth-shattering. We oftentimes miss those moments in between of the terror of trying to care for this Christ. In fact, all four gospel authors give us a little different angle and flavor of the events of that morning. And while each writer gives a bit different angle, each serve to fully complete the picture as best we can of those terrifying and bewildering morning hours. Matthew gives pretty special focus to the earthquake and the angel that comes down to roll the stone away. Luke gives us the later discovery of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who engage with Jesus, not even knowing it. John gives a particularly Peter-focused account of those events. But all of them center on this one person, Mary Magdalene. Mostly because she's the one who got up the earliest to come care And in Mark's account, where we land today, we get a pretty interesting and powerful picture. Look there with me now, if you would, in Mark 16. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, these two different Marys, right? And Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in white robes sitting on the right side. The women were shocked. But the angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here, exclamation point. He's risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell the disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee and you will see him there just as he told you before he died. The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered. And they said nothing to anybody because they were too frightened. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, teach us your way, O Lord, that we might walk in your truth. And may the story of Jesus and may the person of Jesus transform us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You see, the the death of Jesus was something that religious leaders, religious leaders like me, had dreamt of for years. It's probably kind of difficult to wrap our heads around this, but if you have some awareness or some interaction with the scriptures, you're aware that this is something they've been planning for a long time or at least dreaming about. It says in numerous spots throughout all four of the gospels, after Jesus would say or do certain things, the religious leaders would go away and quiet and say, now's the time. 
Let's kill him. But what's really interesting about the arrest and the death of Christ, well, maybe at least the death of him, is it wasn't very well planned out. They did not have any project managers on the job. Because it was kind of the whole thing was botched a little bit. I mean, the, the way the whole thing got planned, the way the whole thing got executed didn't work out very well. And they found themselves in a bit of a predicament in the attempted finality of the assassination of this young rabbi. Being the Jews that they were, they were caught in that predicament. And, and you see, the longer his death took on the cross and the more he suffered the more he appears human. And we can knock him down a peg. It's part of why this way of death, this way of torturous murder was used on Christ. Because the hope was as the crowds would gather to watch him slowly die, his humanity would come out and they would be able to discount everything he had ever said or taught But the, the problem that they hadn't accounted for, the, the math they didn't do, was that the longer he lie on that cross, the longer that death take him, the more he demonstrated his deity. The more God he became, the more forgiving they saw, the, the more interaction with the man on the cross, they're going, my goodness gracious. The more his humility poured out that ever-expanding, peaceful presence that the prophet Isaiah promised in the Messiah was in full bloom on the cross. And in some sense, they couldn't get it over with fast enough. Not to mention they were like up against the clock because Sabbath was coming. And being the good Jews that they were, they had to get this work done before the Sabbath started. They couldn't be caught working on the Sabbath. So they had to get their torturous murder out of the way that their very Old Testament law taught against so they could get to their religious activity of sharing a family meal. Oh, well, I gotta wash my hands. I mean, yeah. it sounds crazy, but this is the predicament they're in. Oh, the things we religious leadership types will justify. The hastily executed plan, it, it all meant that the loved ones of Jesus who would take him from that cross and deliver him to that tomb were also up against the clock. And they had to get him to the tomb quickly and get that stone rolled in front, so they too could close down for Sabbath. The last thing the lovers and followers of Jesus needed at this point was to get rung up on a false charge of breaking the Sabbath. So in the tomb, Jesus goes, and the stone gets rolled away, and everybody goes their separate ways. And in a sense, the best they could do was lay this battered, lifeless Jesus into an empty tomb. So soon as Sabbath ends, as soon 
as that evening meal would break, and there's arguments as to when Sabbath would have officially ended, give or take 6 to 8 p.m. our time in the evening. So Sabbath would go evening to evening. So as soon as evening came and that final meal was done, Sabbath was over, and the women go out right away to get the spices. But it's dark by now, so they wait till morning to go to the tomb. And the first big problem they face, obviously, was to get that massive stone rolled out of the way. And you get this feeling as you, you read the text that even on their end, they're, they're kind of surfing this wave, trying to figure it out. They're already on their way, spices in hand. And, and it's almost as if, this is just your friend Stu talking, but it's almost as if they go, oh no, there's that stupid rock in the way. We gotta get that dumb rock out of the way so we can dress the body of Jesus. Which is more than like a laughable coincidence. I'll come back to something that I think is there in a moment. Look back again at verses two through four with me. Very early Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance. But as they arrived, they looked up and they saw the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. I just, I can't help but get a little ahead of myself in these moments together by speaking a word to us of application for our life. The stones which separate God from his people always get rolled away. There is no stone that lies between you and intimate relationship with God that he hasn't rolled away. Now, there's all kinds of life pain and life experience and messed up, all kinds of stuff, but there is no stone that lies between you and God that he has not already rolled away. Now, for some, I'd imagine that's a hopeful and wonderful message and reminder. And especially if you are the type who's not wrestling with deep doubts in these days of your life. After all, God's presence with his people is like kind of the story of the Bible. I mean, this is one of the central themes of all Scripture God and his longing to know his people and be known by his people. He made them, man and woman, in his image, in their image, to be like them. And the moment innocence is lost in the garden, God says to Adam, where did you go? Not what did you do. Not, are you kidding me already? (laughs) Just where did you go? I just want to be with you. I long to be with you. And we see this story of God's desire to know you and to be known by you come up all throughout Scripture. We see it in the law in Deuteronomy 31.6. Moses is rising or raising up this young man, Joshua, who will now take over leading Israel. And he says to Joshua, a a word from the Lord that was for all of Israel. He says, so be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not panic before them. 
for the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. And then there's God's reminder to David in in the poetry of Scripture. David writes of God, I I can never escape your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. And, And of course, Jesus himself says these words in a lot of different times and ways. But certainly after his resurrection, when he appears to disciples in Matthew 28, and he says, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And if you haven't tired yet of God's reminder that he is always with you and that he will never leave you and that there is no stone left unturned and rolled away, the author of Hebrews writes in the final chapter of that letter, for God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? All of this, and the dozens more throughout Scripture that tell this story, that send this message to us, his beloved. This idea that God has always been in the business of removing whatever stands between you and an intimate life with God. But allow me to pause for a few moments at least and address at least one of the elephants in the room, at least one of them that I sense, which is the reality that not all of us feel that way. Not all of us wake up in the morning saying, thank you, God, you're with me. In fact, a good number of you, I'll I'll point at the air so I don't pick on you, but a good number of you whom I've wept with, who I've sat with, who I've spent long hours with, have said, I have tried everything to hear God's voice, to feel his presence, to experience what it is, y'all, whoever the proverbial y'all is, to know that God is with me, and I just, can't experience it. And some of that has to do with life experience and and the pain of life. But you know, if you have those doubts, that your life experience is not actually that much more difficult than your neighbor's. Because life is really hard. In fact, have you ever been at one of those dinner parties that gets really awkward and people start talking about how hard their childhood was or their first marriage or their boss? And it becomes sort of this like, contest of who has it worse, right? Well, I mean, you think that's bad. You should hear what my, oh, that, oh, no, I've got it. And it just, and you're, if you're like me, you're just sitting in the chair, you just kind of start slipping down in the chair, hoping to slide right under the table and then crawl out of the room. Some of you sat on the other side of the table from me while I did that and wanted to slide out of the room. Like we, we know mentally life is hard for everybody. So then why why do some of us not experience, not feel, not hear the voice of God? If that's the case for you, 
If that's the question you find yourself asking, I can imagine the thought of placing what's left of your life into the hands of Jesus and saying, I'm going to live your way, Jesus, sounds like a ridiculous concept. He's not taking care of me in the way that I thought he ought so far, or I've done a pretty good job of taking care of myself. Might seem pretty far-fetched to place your trust in Jesus. That lack of personal and undeniable experience with the living God that many feel, many Christ followers feel, many agnostics feel, atheists, doubters. It makes the believing of this full story pretty difficult to do. Let me just say I'd love to sit with you. I don't have any magic bullet answers. I I can promise you that. I don't have a perfectly executed argument to give you to win you over. But I'll listen. And I know I'm not the only in this room. I know there's dozens others who would love to hear the pain of your life. Ask God to make himself clear and real and true to you. But let me at least say this, that I could say from one guy on a microphone to a crowded room, you're not crazy. And even if you're a little crazy, I mean, some of you, I mean, let's face it, you're a little, right? You're not alone. You're not the only one sitting in the chair right now going, I'm doing my time, I'm here, these are my friends, this is my family, whatever, they have the awesome donuts. But I don't know about this story. You're not alone. Well, let's let's come back to the story of Scripture because I think it provides hope for us in these closing moments because in my view, there is little doubt, if any, in the mind of Mary Magdalene and the other two women with her in the account of Mark that they were approaching a dead body. We forget that. They did not wake up that morning walking to each other, he is risen, he is risen indeed, let's go. (laughs) Now, if you're one of those, he is risen, he is risen indeed, I mean, hallelujah, awesome, great. But I'm just gonna keep it real with you. Sometimes when you say that to other people, their skin crawls right out of their skeleton. And, and part, I think part of the reason for those of you who have a bit of that skin crawl when that happens, it's because it's not how the story went. These women think they're going to a dead body. Now, they can do math. They know it's been three days. It's been the most memorable three days in history. Now, maybe they've been so long, they've all gone together a little bit, but they know in the back of their mind, if the prophecy that rang out in the Old Testament that Jesus kept saying, tear down the temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Kill me and in three days I'll be back. That's ringing in the back of their head, yet they are not showing up expecting to see a risen Savior. They bought spices, friends. They're going to a dead man. 
and they're doing what they think is the right thing to do, the honorable, respectful, loving thing to do for their friend and their rabbi Jesus. So if you're one of those who feels doubts, if you're one of those who asks the questions, maybe you feel like you have arrived to the Easter party with a bag of dead spices, you're not alone. Mary Magdalene did too. And you know what? She was the first to see Jesus. You may be the one to show the rest of us who think we got it all figured out what Jesus actually looks like, what Jesus actually says, the mission of Christ in our midst. They're they're on their way and they're they're talking about how are we going to roll the stone away so we can embalm a dead body. And when they arrive at the tomb and there's an angel waiting to greet them and they hear the news and he says, here's the clothes. They don't break out in a perfect chorus sung in the round of, I am a C, I am a C-H, I am No, they run in terror. They're scared to death. In fact, the account of Mark says that they were so scared they couldn't even speak. Maybe under all the bravado, maybe under all the, I've got my life together on my own, maybe under all the anger and the rage, maybe, just maybe, under all of that for you, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, it's just plain old-fashioned fear. What if it's a dead body? Matthew says of these women that they were frightened, that they were filled with great joy, and that they grasped Jesus' feet and worshipped him. Mark says of them, they were shocked, they were trembling, they were bewildered, and they were too frightened to speak. Finding yourself in the story yet? Okay. But wait, there's more. The Gospel of Luke says that they were puzzled and terrified. And the gospel of John just says they were crying. You see, just because the stone had rolled away and just because Jesus wasn't there, even later finding out that he was alive, when she saw him with her own eyes, Mary Magdalene, it says in John 20, 17, she clung to Jesus. She clinged to him and wouldn't let go. And even after all of this, it doesn't mean that she wasn't feeling the terror and the doubt and the fear and the fright of it all. You see, the story of Jesus, the story of his death and his resurrection is ridiculous. It's crazy. It's the kind of stories we read in fantasy novels that I don't read because those stories are ridiculous. (laughs) I don't have time for that. Give me a true crime podcast. That stuff happened. I want to hear about it. I'm sorry for all of you who are. I need you in my life so that I never have to watch any of those dumb movies. You can just tell me how the guy with the bow and arrow beat Thor with a giant. What? No. No. 
I mean, it sounds like a fantasy story. It doesn't sound like real life. So for those of you who lack confidence, for those of you, whether you've followed Jesus 30 years or whether you're as agnostic as you've ever been, you're in good company. But I invite you into a thought experiment today. I'd invite all of us into a thought experiment today into asking ourselves,